This morning's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. If you're reading in the church Bibles, it's on page 1006. They went across the lake to the region of the Gennarisons. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he broke the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When Jesus saw from, when Jesus, excuse me, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened and to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Naomi. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sense of your presence in this place today. Thank you that for hundreds of years, people have gathered in this building to worship you, to pray, to seek you, and to meet with you. And we pray today that we might hear your voice speaking clearly to us, individually and collectively as a church. Thank you that you know everything about us, everything that's going on in your world. And we pray, Lord, that we might hear your voice speaking words of comfort, speaking words of reassurance, but also speaking words of challenge. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as has been mentioned, this is one of the two occasions in the year when we just take a step back and remind each other who we are as a church and why we do what we do, and perhaps what God might be calling us into over the next few months. I was aged 19 years of age. 
and it was my gap year between school and university, and I got a job with a camping uh, a holiday company called Eurocamp. You may have used them. Uh, they're loads better than Canvas holidays who, that were their competition. Uh, but Eurocamp was based in the town where I was born and, and grew up, and I happened to get a job in their head office. When I say head office, it was their only office. And in the February, I was asked to go out to France and accompany one of the managers who was going to drive the lorry, and we were going to take new tents out to four campsites around Brittany and Normandy. I was the lorry driver's mate. I was the muscle. This was over 40 years ago. Um, and I took the opportunity during that week to grow my first and only beard. I looked horrendous. Uh, my kids still look at the photographs and say, who is that? Because uh, it's not a good sight. It's as if all the hair from my eyebrows was taken and put on my chin. It was not a great look. But the first, and we had to do four ferry trips in, two, in that four days, the first one involved a trip from Plymouth to Roscoff. Now, Roscoff is right on the end of Brittany. And this was in February. And when we got to Plymouth, I realized that the weather forecast was not great. Now, I've told some of you before about my um, strength as a sailor. This was the formative week in which my proclivity towards throwing up on boats, uh, where it was formed. Because we went up to the restaurant, and we got a, a coffee and something to eat. And just as we exited the harbor in Plymouth, the front, the bow, went up, it then sort of hung in the air for what seemed about 30 seconds, and then crashed down again, and then a wave went over the bow of the boat, the same wave went over the restaurant in the boat, and the same wave went over the entire ferry. And that was the start of eight hours of hell for me. I was sick, and then I was sick, and then I was sick, and then I was sick again. And it went on for eight hours. We learned later we were in a force nine, force ten gale. It was unbelievable. We went up, and we just hung, and then we went down. We rolled over from one side to the other. It was that one of those occasions, if you've ever been on a, on a cross-channel ferry, and if this is triggering for some of you, I do apologize. But the worst moment is when you hear the ship judder. Because you think, oh, my word. So we spent basically eight, eight and a half hours just going up and down. Up and then to the side. And I, my manager, who I not really got to know, we discovered a, um, a level of intimacy and acquaintance uh, with each other because we were sharing a cabin that we had not anticipated. And it was just absolutely horrendous. We got eventually, eventually, to Roscoff. We drove the lorry off. I was just completely wasted. Not in an alcoholic sense. I was just complete. I was pale. I was weak. I was exhausted. Uh, most of my stomach was in the bathroom, in the cabin. It was just horrendous. And the manager turned to me and said, should we find a restaurant and have a nice steak frites, a uh, glass of wine? And I said, no, I just want to lie down without going up and down and up and down. Oh, it was dreadful. 
Now, why tell that story at the start of a talk on Vision Sunday? Well, because I think that's probably how the disciples of Jesus felt at the start of this passage that Naomi read for us from Mark chapter 5. Last week, we saw how they had been on a boat with Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had called them to go to the other side, but halfway across, they'd been hit by a fierce storm. Now, some of them were experienced sailors, four of them. They were fishermen, but eight of them were landlubbers. They were tax collectors. They didn't go out for leisure cruises. They didn't normally go on the sea. We met, and last week, again, we were hearing that for Jewish people, the sea equaled evil. The sea equaled chaos. The sea equaled where God wasn't. And the storm had been so bad that they thought they were going to die. Very similar to how I felt during that cruise. I, I, during that crossing, I, I prayed for deliverance. I prayed for mercy. And in the end, after about six hours, I prayed for death. It was, Lord, take me and take me now. And that's probably how the disciples were feeling in the storm. When they come to Jesus and said, we're going to die, don't you care? And eventually Jesus stands up and says to the wind and the waves, as if he's speaking an, an errant toddler or a naughty puppy, he just says, be quiet. Get down. And there's that phrase where it says, the wind and the waves obeyed him. But we don't know how long the storm has been going on. We don't know how long Jesus has been asleep in the bow. So maybe the disciples, as they get to the other side, are feeling exactly how I was feeling when we hit Roscoff. They're exhausted. They're pale. They're washed out. Most of their stomachs are in the Sea of Galilee. They feel absolutely dreadful because Jesus has told them to go to the other side. Now, that phrase, the other side, can sound to us like, well, a pretty innocuous one. For us, when we think about going to the other side, we might think about getting on the M8 and going to Glasgow, getting on a train and going over to Glasgow Central or Queen Street, or if we're really daring, going from Stockbridge to Morningside. Uh, just going over to the other side, it's quite innocuous, it's quite harmless, it's quite painless. But for first century Jewish people in Palestine, going over to the other side had particular connotations. Because the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, was where hundreds of years before, the seven nations of Canaan had moved to when the Jewish people had begun to occupy the promised land. The people of Canaan had moved over to the other side. So the other side was full of pagans. The other side was full of pagan temples. Apparently the ruins are still there. And the other side for Jewish people was where in their mindset God didn't live. The Jewish people felt the other side was where good, nice Jewish people, certainly not rabbis, should ever go. It was known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. And it was the place, significantly, where the Romans had set up their headquarters with their legions of armies. And they, they even put a pig on the top of their eagle standard, and that was their standard of the legion that was based in the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. Perhaps significant when you think about what happens to the pigs in the story. 
So Jesus saying, let's go over to the other side, is quite significant. Because what Jesus is doing is he's going over to the pagan side. He's going over to the Gentile side. He's going over to where God, it was thought, did not live. He's going over to where good religious Jewish people, and especially rabbis, did not go. He's going over to the other side, and that phrase was very, very significant for him and his followers. One writer, the church leader, pastor John Ortberg, makes the following observation. He said, it's almost as if Jesus didn't know that this is the other side. It's almost as if he thinks it's his side. It's almost as if Jesus thought every side belonged to him or that he belonged to every side. So what Jesus is saying in this simple act of let's go over to the other side is revolutionary and countercultural. What Jesus is saying is that from now on, there is no other side. From now on, there's no us and them. With Jesus, there's just us. Now, people always want to break down society to us and them. In the time of Jesus, it was Jews versus Gentiles, Romans versus Greeks, slave versus free. Today, it's Hearts versus Hibs, or Rangers versus Celtic, or Scots versus English, or rich versus poor, or haves versus have-nots, left versus right politically in the UK or in the States, Brexiteers versus Ramonas, pro-Scottish independence as opposed to pro-union. We want to break up society into us and them. And this has become particularly prevalent on social media, where it's very much about us and them. You have followers, and then you have people who are not your followers. Jesus is saying that as he goes to the other side, from now on, there is no other side with Jesus. But it gets worse, because as they get to the other side, perhaps confirming the disciples' worst fears, they are met by a demonized man. That's a better translation rather than demon-possessed. He's naked, he's violent, he's shameless, he's disinhibited, he's out of control, he's self-harming, he's violent, and he's isolated. He's become dislocated from his family, he's become dislocated from his community, He's perhaps got an obsession with death or with dying because he's, he's living in the graveyards. He cuts himself. They try and chain him and try and contain him, and he, he cuts the chains. He's got supernatural strength, and he's able to break free, and he's quite a terrifying figure. They step off the boat on the other side, and this guy runs towards them shouting, Jesus, what do you want with me, son of the Most High God? The disciples, who up to that moment are doubtful about ever setting foot in a boat again with Jesus, may have been tempted to turn to Jesus and say, can we go back? Can we get back in the boat and can we go back to where it's safe, where it's familiar, and where we know where things are, where people like this person aren't? He asks the man, what is your name? And the reply is revealing. The NIV says, legion, for we are many. 
The Good News Bible has a much more evocative phrase. Rather than legion, it translates the word as mob. That's who has taken over control of this man's life. There's a mob of evil spirits. There's a mob of the demonic that have taken over this man, so much so that he's lost his family, he's lost his identity, and he's even lost his name. Legion. Mob. It becomes clear that it's not the man who knows who Jesus is, but it's the evil spirits, it's the demons that know who Jesus is. They beg to be allowed to go into the pigs, which Jesus permits, but even the pigs can't cope with evil spirits. And the pigs, 2,000 of them, commit suicide by throwing themselves off the side of the cliff and they're drowned in the sea. And the man, well, the man is restored. There's that lovely phrase in verse 15 where it says the people who saw this, they go away because they're scared, and then they come back. And in verse 15, we're told that they find the man sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. The man is restored. The man's sanity has been restored. The man's identity has been restored. He's dressed. But where has he got the clothes from? He's got the clothes from the disciples because the disciples are starting to do what Jesus has told them to do. They're starting to put into practice the teaching that Jesus has given them about giving somebody a spare cloak, giving them somebody a spare robe, meeting the need of the people around them. The man is sitting at Jesus' feet. That, again, is descriptive of somebody who's become a disciple. When you sit at the feet of a rabbi, you've become their disciple. So the man is sitting dressed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus because he's become his follower. Now, as somebody has asked several times this week, why are we looking at that story today? It's not just because we did Mark chapter 4 last week, and next week we're doing Mark chapter 6. But actually, as I thought over the summer, this was the passage that came to mind for Vision Sunday. Because I think it actually speaks to where many of us might be and where many of us might be feeling. Now, I'm not saying that you're demonized. Although, no, um, I'm not saying that. But it would be very easy in our society, just now, in our culture, to want to feel exactly how the followers of Jesus felt in wanting to draw back, in wanting to go back to where it was safe. The reality is that you and I, and you don't need me to tell you, but that we live in very uncertain and anxious times financially, economically, and socially. We're all aware of the rising cost of living. We're all aware of the rising cost of fuel. We're all aware of the rising cost of food. We're aware of food poverty becoming an issue and fuel poverty becoming an issue. 
As one interviewer expressed it to the Prime Minister on Thursday on local radio, people were wondering how to keep their homes warm this winter. Now they're worried about whether they can keep their homes. Full stop. I was actually in London this week for three days as part of my, I'm doing a doctorate, and we were being taught in the city of London. And it was very sobering to go out at lunchtime and to stand in front of the Bank of England and to see this range of television cameras just waiting for an announcement that never came. But because people realized in the media the maelstrom that this building was at the heart of. Then there's the IMF questioning the financial situation in the UK. There's possible interest rate rises, people finding it more difficult to get mortgages. Politically, things are very volatile. A new prime minister, a new government at Westminster, even a new king. There's war in Ukraine, increased numbers of refugees from Afghanistan and Syria, Ukraine and Hong Kong. And this just after we're recovering from the biggest global pandemic in the last 100 years. And lots of people in our society feel exhausted, they feel very uncertain, they feel very anxious, they feel very bewildered, and they feel very fearful. Lots of people, their resilience levels are very low, and their resources financially, economically, socially, and spiritually are quite depleted. And maybe, just maybe, just like the disciples who faced that demonized man, the temptation for you and for me just now, is to want to retreat, is to want to step back, is want to hunker down, is want to draw back and rely on the familiar and the known and the safe and the predictable. Because the world out there is bad and the world out there is uncertain. And the world out there is insecure, and the world out there hasn't got a scoobies what is about to happen. Now, that may be true, but I also think that at the same time, and I've had this sense over the last three weeks now, it's very, if I'm honest, it's very rare that I get a sort of insight into where culture is. Those of you who've known me for 26 years say, yeah, Dave, we know it's very rare. But listening to other people speak that I respect, listening to other Christians and church leaders that I respect, a theme keeps on coming over again and again, that even though things may be uncertain, that even though things may be anxious, that even though so much is unpredictable, there may be an openness to the Christian faith that few of us have ever seen in our lifetime. Now, I'm not saying it's revival, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that it's the opinion of quite a few people that as you look back through history and as you look at Scripture, God often uses times like the ones that we're living through as a precursor to a, an unusual movement of the Holy Spirit. And I think as people sadly come literally to the end of themselves, and sadly literally come to the end of their physical resources, I think there may well be an openness for us to speak about the hope and the peace and the love 
that is found only in Jesus that our society may be open to in a way that they have not been for decades. I might be wrong, but I just get that sense. And that's where our vision and our strategy, our plans and our priorities over the next two years really comes in. Over the summer, we've been thinking and talking and planning and praying and listening. We, we held five focus groups. Uh, we had about 60 people. Some of you are here this morning. And we asked you where you thought we were as a church and what God was saying to us as a church. And as we look back over the previous two years, despite the pandemic, there was much that we'd achieved in Stretch 25, which was our previous five-year strategy. Successive lockdowns and the restrictions that came with them forced us to adapt quickly. We did online church in a way that few of us had ever expected or planned or prepared to do. We were enabled to take lots of our courses online. So we had Alpha and pre-marriage and marriage prep and bereavement journey and the sanctuary mental health course. They all went online and people became Christians, some of them from around the world. Never forget, Josh texted me after the first online Alpha course and him saying, we've got somebody from South India on our Alpha course. Josh, like me, thought they might come from Stockbridge. We didn't think they'd come from Delhi. And suddenly a whole avenue of ministry was opened up to us. Connect groups came to the fore during lockdown with the result that more people now are in connect groups, which are our sort of expression of midweek church, than ever before. We appointed a student worker, and now Joe Twig, our curator, is overseeing this area. We developed our partnerships with organizations like Bethany and World Vision and Tear Fund, Home for Good and Safe Families for Children. We developed new relationships with organizations like Edinburgh City Mission and Open Doors, Eco Congregation Scotland, Sanctuary Foundation, Welcome Churches UK, and Hong Kong Welcome. We took more seriously our responsibility as stewards of God's creation. And under Bethany's leadership, uh, we he began to influence and shape how we do church. We even have now got a silver eco-congregation award. We continue to run Saturday meal throughout the pandemic. That was an amazing achievement by you who are members of that team, to keep the Saturday meal going. Despite the restrictions and despite the lockdown, when we could, we did what we were able to with the resources that we had. We took over 40 people through our ministry development program, and then we started to have significant conversations, strategic conversations with bishops about how we might begin to think about planting new churches across Scotland. Now, we sense and we have listened to the feedback that we received during those focus group meetings that now is there not the time to make big, expensive plans for the next five years or so. Because we recognize that as a society and as a culture, we're in flux at the moment. So therefore, we want to be adaptive, we want to be flexible, we want to not be too firm in the plans that we put down. Now, as Libby mentioned, the vision hasn't changed. We still believe that God is calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. But there are three areas that we want to push into over the next two years. If you've got a phone, 
and you're not on Facebook already, um, come off Facebook and, and go to the church website. Okay, I'm giving you permission now to take this is very dangerous territory, uh, but uh, to take your phone out, go to the P's and G's website, and to look for our new priorities and plans. If you scroll down through the front page to the bottom, it should take you a page to, to some pages where it talks about the three things that we want to focus on as a church. And the first is that we want to grow and deepen. We want to grow and deepen. Now, we're very aware over the last two and a half, three years that there have been lots of times when we couldn't meet together normally as a church. And many of us, me included, really struggled with the fact that we weren't able to meet normally as church. Online church was a great substitute, but it wasn't the real thing. Because as human beings, we're built for relationships. We're built for face-to-face -face contact. And the whole thing about the Christian faith, and it's been a weakness of evangelical Christianity over the last 200 years, is that although every individual needs to come to a personal commitment in Christ, the whole thing is designed around community. Most of the verbs in the New Testament are plural. They're not individualistic. And we make the mistakes and get into trouble when we try and apply plural verbs to ourselves as individuals. Because our faith is meant to be worked out in the context of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that church is Christ's community embodied here on earth. And we're meant to work out what it is to be a follower of Jesus in relationship with each other. And so over the next two years, we're quite deliberately, quite consciously, quite intentionally going to put energy and time and resources into rebuilding that sense of community. It's why we had a Kaylee on Friday night, why we had 180 people hooling and hollering and going bananas in here having a Kaylee, because we need to spend time with each other. We are really conscious that over the last two years, nearly 200 people have joined P's and G's. We've lost about 40 or 50 who haven't come back after the lockdown, but the stats show that nearly 200 people have become part of P's and G's over the last two years. We are not the same church that went into the pandemic. The church that has come out of the pandemic is a different church church. And some of you this morning have come from other churches, or perhaps you come from no church background at all, and you've joined P's and G's. So things like Sunday gatherings, social events like Kayleys and lunches, connect groups, teaching, hospitality, and serving together, we want to rebuild that sense of community. And one of the things we want to lean into is to help each other to become confident and resilient disciples. That's a phrase that you'll hear a lot. Confident and resilient disciples. One of the things that the pandemic and the lockdown showed was that in the church in the West, in the church in the UK, we have what has been, been called a discipleship deficit. And we need to become better at helping one another to grow as Christians, because it's only as we know who Jesus is, it's only as we become, become more confident in who Jesus is, 
It's only as we know his love and his mercy and his power at work in our lives that we can be of any help and any use for the world outside. There's a lovely quote from Mother Teresa who was asked once about her life, and she said this, I am just a little pencil in the hand of God who is writing a love letter to the world. You are a little pencil that God is using to write a love letter to his world. You might feel insignificant. You might feel as though your efforts are puny. You might think compared to Mother Teresa, you're a really, really, really small pencil. But God wants to use you to express and demonstrate and show his love and his mercy and his compassion to this world. So whatever else you hear this morning, whatever else you think about P's and G's for the next two years, know that everything stands and falls upon how deep and how we grow in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with one another. I'm going to ask Mark if he wants just to, to come and join us, or join me. And I'm going to invite us to have a moment. So if you'd like to stand, if you're able. And in the next few minutes, I'll just finish off by very quickly going through some things that we're going to do. But I want you to remember this moment. Because this is us saying, as P's and G's, that whatever we do, it is all about Jesus. It's not about strategy, it's not about activity, it's not about programs, it's not about courses, it's not about stuff, it's not about the what or the how, it all comes down to the who. So Mark's going to lead us as we sing, I rest my soul on Jesus. And the chorus again just comes back again and again that everything we owe is to the grace of God. And let's commit ourselves as a church to deepen our relationship with Jesus before we talk about any activity. Please sit down. So in five minutes, what we're going to do in the next two years... We're going to explore and we're going to plan. We're looking at ways in which we can plant churches across Scotland. We're looking at ways in which we can play more of an impact in terms of social transformation. We are looking to appoint next summer a second curate to go alongside Joe. Not because Joe isn't great, but we're looking for somebody else who will come and be with us who will also explore planting a church across Scotland. Because of the demands upon our online ministry and also Saturday meal, baby bank and counselling services, I, I happened to be here yesterday and, and walked through Bounce. We had 98 people in Bounce yesterday. We have 400 people in our books for babies and toddlers. Um, we have uh, our international sort of English language cafe is oversubscribed. We can run it three afternoons a week. We're having hundreds of people who are from Afghanistan and Syria and Ukraine come to our monthly events uh, to help integrate them into Edinburgh and Scottish life. So we will look to appoint a staff person who will oversee this whole area of social transformation. Because if we're going to do it, 
We need to do it properly, and we need someone to give it direction, to give it leadership, and to give it energy. And then thirdly, we want to love and serve with impact. We'll continue to help and support people who arrive in Edinburgh as refugees, but we also want actively to think about ways in which we can offer short-term and high-impact help for people who are going to be in desperate need, particularly over this winter, across Edinburgh. The Saturday meal began eight years ago because we spotted a need that nobody else in the city was meeting. Are there other opportunities that we might have to contribute to the life of the city to demonstrate and show the compassion and the love of Jesus to this city? But it all comes down to how we abide in Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It all comes down to us abiding in Christ, and how deep we are prepared to go. Libby.